If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you ask people what they know about the Bible, the Old Testament, that they may or may not have many answers, one of them will certainly be Noah's Ark. I mean, it's the kind of thing that everybody in the world knows about. So any new bit of evidence about that is quite interesting. That was Irving Finkel talking about a remarkable Babylonian tablet. When you have a look at the, the Victorian revival of Norse myths, it was all about deeds of valour and heroism. Um, nowadays, when we look at the, the elements of Norse myth that have crept into pop culture, it's much more ambivalent. And that was Joanne Harris discussing the subject of her new book. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. And I should also add that we've recently launched on Kobo, and you'll find us there under the e-magazine section on kobo.com. If you've been following the news these past few weeks, you might have read about the story of the discovery of a Babylonian tablet, nearly 4,000 years old, that dramatically changes our understanding of the ancient flood story. The person who's translated this tablet and written a new book about it, is Irving Finkel, an expert on ancient Mesopotamia based at the British Museum. So I headed over to the museum to see the tablet for myself and to get the lowdown from Finkel about this remarkable find. I began by asking him how the tablet first came to his attention. Well, it's a simple thing because curators in the museum, one of the things that we do is to offer a service to the public when people have objects to be looked at or questions to be answered and somebody brought it in in the normal kind of way with a collection of other bits and pieces and I was a duty officer so I had a look and talked to the person and started to look at the material carefully and that's when it happened. How had he got hold of it then? Douglas Simmons, the chap who brought this tablet yeah. in, 
he was, I suppose, in his early 50s. But what had happened was that his dad had made a collection of curiosities a long time before, I think after the war, he was in the Middle East in the late 1940s, and he picked up things from Mesopotamia, a few Egyptian things, a few Chinese bits and pieces. He was sort of interested in stuff like that. And uh, when Douglas got through some... I can't remember exactly, some grim exams at school. Mm. His dad gave him this box of stuff as a present. So he'd had it for a long time and he was interested in it. And there were seals and things and he liked that. And, and so he, he eventually brought in uh, th- this tablet and, and, and I had a look at it. And um, the thing is, um, it, you know, it's a normal cuneiform tablet. It's made of baked clay and the surface is covered in this cuneiform writing which is, it's rather spiky looking because it's impressed into the surface of the clay. It's not writing like you do with a pencil on a piece of paper with a continuous line. But the signs are made up of strokes of a thing a bit like a chopstick and you press the end of this stick into the clay and you make the signs so it looks kind of spiky and odd when you first see it but i've been reading this stuff since i went to university you know it's my work so i wasn't frightened by it but when i picked this thing up i could read straight away the first line at the top and this said wall wall read wall read wall in babylonian now the thing is this Anybody who's ever done the seriology knows that line better than any other line at all, really, because it's the first line of the famous speech when the Babylonian god uh, tells the Babylonian equivalent of Noah that he's got to stop what he's doing and build a boat jolly fast and rescue life before the waters come. So it's the first line of this speech. So when I read it, I knew immediately it was part of this famous flood story and it was going to be a new a new uh, piece. Now, the thing is that we have huge numbers of tablets, huge numbers of them. Um, in this museum, more than 130,000. And only a minority of them to do with literature. And the flood story is probably the most interesting of all Mesopotamian literature. So any bit that ever comes up is, is itself is riveting. Everybody wants to read these things if they ever um, materialise. And this was a 60-line tablet. So I knew it was going to be fascinating. And I said to Douglas, look, this is part of the flood story. And he said, great, what's this? And we looked at one or two other things. And then he took it away. All he wanted was the basic information. And I only read the, literally the first couple of lines, and then he went away. And I didn't see this tablet for a long time, many years, in fact, 15 years or something like that. And I remembered it periodically and wondered about it. And then we had a big exhibition here about the city of Babylon, a big archaeological ex- exhibition. Mm-hmm. And I was in the gallery one afternoon spying on the public and uh, trying to overhear what they really thought of the exhibits, which is always very interesting. Oh, curated, 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 that, yes, absolutely. <laughs> we think they're going to think everything's marvellous, but they don't always. Anyway, the, the thing was, there was Douglas looking at some inscriptions in, in the glass case, so I hurried over and said, look, hello, it's me, do you remember this thing? Have you still got it? And uh, he was very helpful, and he brought it in, and he left it with me in the museum for study purposes. Mm. So then... I had the opportunity to really work on it. And as I did that, and it took quite a long time because it's not perfectly preserved and it, there was no duplicate for most of it, so one had to think very carefully about what was left and try to decipher it. As I went down this tablet, down the front and then down the back, new discoveries leapt out every um, five minutes. So it was an extremely um, health-endangering experience because um, once I'd deciphered the the rest of the speech, which, of course, was there, as you'd expect, the next thing that happens in the general story, as it's long known, is that the instruction is there to build this ark. But this tablet was unique because it told you all about the ark. It told you, for example, that it was a round vessel because the god says, draw on the ground a round circle and tells him the area of this circle and that's going to be the base of the boat and he explains that you need palm fiber rope to make the body of the boat and uh, how much of that was necessary and that um, there's going to be wooden ribs inside it to make it stable and then bitumen to waterproof it so uh, what what turned out to be so astonishing really was that in the middle of a literary text which is a big famous piece of mythology all about saving the world and heroes coming in at the last minute, there was suddenly this um, block of what you might call technical 
specifications, much more detailed than normally you'd find in a story, mm-hmm. which, which were astonishing. And there were many things about them which were astonishing, not least the fact that they made sense intrinsically. So the thing was that um, the conception of the boat embodied in this story was a round vessel of the type that we call a coracle mm. in the British Isles. It's a traditional river boat that is found in many parts of the world and also was found in ancient Mesopotamia at the time that this tablet was written, which was about 1750 BC. In those days, they had coracles on the river. So it became clear, and this is what is really rather interesting, that the poet who wrote this account of the flood, he asked himself, or he, uh, his predecessors had asked themselves, if there was going to be a boat in which all life was to be saved, what would it be like? And the obvious thing was, in fact, a coracle, because they were used on the Euphrates and Tigris rivers to move animals and people around. They were very buoyant. They wouldn't sink. A bit difficult to steer, but nevertheless very reliable. And so in this mythological composition, their idea was a coracle, but not a normal-sized you know, thing that you keep in your, in your garage, like a normal family car, but a whacking great coracle where the, the surface area which is, as I mentioned, specified in the text, is about half the size of a modern English football pitch. So quite a large vessel. And um, the specifications, uh, when you work them out, are in proportion to the size. So it was something much more exact than a normal kind of storytelling thing when you say, well, it was as tall as a hundred houses and, you know, Mm. as far as the eye could see kind of measurements. It was exact measurements on a really big scale. Do you have any idea why they provide this specific technical information for a great mythological story? I've had one idea. We can't, I can't prove it, but I mm. think it's plausible. Um, around the time this tablet was written, which was about 1800 BC, something like that, uh, this was a period when what had been a long-running tradition of oral literature delivered by itinerant storytellers was being written down in a more formal way. So it had started before this period, but it was still a period of flux. And I had the idea that um, what might be going on here is the following thing, that uh, people who travel from village to village telling stories about the gods with a bit of music and a bit of drama and poetry and so forth would obviously have used the flood story of one of their central topics because it's so gripping and everybody would understand how vital it was and it occurred to me that maybe the bulk of these audiences would be people who live by the by the rivers they would be fishermen and boatmen and, and boat builders and people for whom boats were real life and perhaps if storytellers used to say well they had this great he said build this great boat and put all the animals in you can imagine people sitting around the fire would say well what was, it, what was it like this boat how big was it you know all that kind of stuff and, and, then, and then when he said don't ask me or and then maybe one day one of these storytellers thought I must you know maybe it was a coracle and then it had to be a big coracle then they want to know how big it was and then how much rope there was and and it wouldn't wouldn't be enough for them just to be told it was a big coracle so it seems to me that you could imagine I mean we can't prove this and it's a slightly romantic way of looking at an ancient problem but I have a feeling that that the input of this data into what we would call a story where it wouldn't necessarily belong might have been in response to that kind of requirement. But it does raise the question, who did the calculations? Because if if this is right, this is the domain of travelling storytellers, they wouldn't know enough maths to work all these things out. And it turns out that the maths are very exact. For example, the god tells Noah, so to speak, that the amount of rope he needs to make this rope boat is... The same distance, it turns out to be the same distance as from London to Edinburgh. That's really quite a long piece of rope. And because of the information given in the tablet, and we know about the shape of the thing, and we know about the necessary mathematical data, it is possible to calculate that for both of that size, with rope of such and such a thickness, what it would really need. And when these two figures are put side by side the length being London to Edinburgh, the disparity between what the god told the Babylonian and what a mathematician works out today is less than 1%. So this is an extraordinary fact which has to be accounted for. So I think 
what happened was that input into the story derived from some experience in a classroom where we know a little bit about the schoolwork, the people, how boys were taught to write in the first place and how their curriculum evolved. And when they were fluent in the script and they were about to become jobbing scribes in, in, in the community who would have to do different sorts of work, one of the things they trained them was in um, elementary mathematical calculation about how much you need if you're going to do a wall such and such a length, you know, the bricks are such and such a volume, how, you know, these sorts of mathematical questions. They often had to work out and quantities of barley and yields and all these sort of practical things. And I have a theory, although, again, I have to reiterate, we can't prove this, that maybe one of the teachers had these boys in the classroom, they're a bit fed up, you know, doing the normal kind of school exercises and said, I've got an idea. Okay, everybody knows the arc is around coracle. Okay, well, let's imagine that the area of this thing is such and such, and the, the walls are such and such. How much rope will we need to build it? So they busily work it out with their clever little mathematical brains, and then the data arrives. And somehow or other, this is fed into the requirement by a storyteller who's talking about this, where people want to know more information. But what is really marvellous uh, about this whole idea, which may sound a little fanciful, is this. The most famous version of the Flood story, which uh, occurs in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a kind of penguin book-type classic thing that lots of people yeah. have heard about, the hero Gilgamesh, the Flood story occurs there. And this was written in about... Uh, 700 BC, about a thousand years after the tablet we've just been talking about. And we have a bit of the flood story there, the famous bit that George Smith discovered, in fact, about the water and the birds being released and all, all that famous material. But in that story, the, the, the section about building the ark has minimum material of this exact mm. nature. So it looks to me as if you have a stage where a storyteller needs this data in order to convince his audience that the thing is credible. And it runs in this body of literature for a certain period. But when we pick it up a thousand years later, it's all been purged out again. Because most people who were listening to the story didn't give a fig about the quantity of bitumen and how you stirred it and how you had to put fat in it to make it viscous or something like that. All they wanted was the story of the flood and the adventure and what happened in the end. So that the, the evolution of the story saw input of stuff. When you very reasonably asked, what is that doing in a story? Yeah. In, in a normal story, there is no room for that. People are not interested in it. And I think that's what happened. It popped in and eventually it was rejected and they just got on with the narrative. So if the storyteller would tell this story, would the same storyteller have written this? Probably this not. Probably not. Because oral literature, obviously, of its own nature, is nothing to do with writing. So I think what you have is a long tradition where um, stories about um, Gilgamesh, the great hero, um, and uh, the, the, the flood story, and, and the gods and goddesses, there's a whole uh, shopping bag full of these narratives, must have circulated in a purely oral fashion for a very long time. And this tablet, the Simmons tablet, appears on a horizon when there's a gradual shift. So I don't think the oral literature stopped dead, but we have the process of things being reduced to writing. And I think that what we have here is a rather unusual matter that it's a bit of frozen writing of a moment when all these things were, were, were changing. Because a good narrator a good storyteller will mould the narrative according to the audience. And if they're getting bored, mm. you, you get on with it. And if they're really frightened, you slow down and so forth. And so you manipulate their responses. And you can imagine that this whole range of oral literature must have been flexible like that. And w this sort of arrival of the hard data is almost like a prompt for an actor who... Um, or a reciter who's going to be dealing with this whole arc story and knows that at some point he's going to have to remember all this technical material and has this material to hand. It's sort of a, somewhere between pure oral literature and exclusively written literature. So very interesting matter. And um, in point of fact, the cuneiform literature on the whole has no parallel to this. It's a, it's a remarkable issue that it needs a new bit, bit of interpretive stuff of the kind that I'm talking about because it's not, it's not clear otherwise mm. how that would be in the story and that's only my explanation of it. And so 
who would have produced this this document if it wasn't the storyteller himself? One can't be too precise about reconstructing a scenario, but one thing which is noticeable about this tablet is it has 60 lines of writing, mm. and 60 is an important number in Mesopotamia. It's the essence of their mathematical system, not 10 like with us. So if a composition has 60 lines, this is not accidental. It's, it's a structure. And it is very noticeable that this read-wall-read-wall line comes in at an extremely dramatic moment and the tablet ends at another very dramatic moment, which is when all the animals and the people are on board and everything is loaded. After a you know, fruitless attempt to defer this fatal flood by um, Atrahasis, the Babylonian Noah, eventually he goes through the door. And at that very moment, the last line is he says to the shipwright, when I've gone through the door, seal it behind me with pitch so it's waterproof. So you've got an episode or a, a sequence from one dramatic moment to another dramatic moment. And if you conceive of it in modern terms, it's like an episode on the radio. Yeah. And you go through and it shuts the door and then the signature tune comes in. And then, as it were, the next episode will probably be the next night or something mm. like this. And when it begins with this whispered read war, read war... The story that comes before is the announcement that the, the, the gods are going to wipe out the human race, they're fed up with them. So it lurches from dramatic climax yeah. to dramatic climax. And this, to me, reinforces the idea that it's something to do with an oral matter. Because, you know, you, you, you prepare your audience on the edge of their seats for the next version, and then you leave them afterwards waiting for the next episode too. So I don't think that this is as it were, the script of a complete performance, but it's, it's, it's some of the stuff within it and the two poles apart. And you could also imagine that if you have a room full of farmers and you say all the animals went on board, the farmers are going to say, well, wait a minute, did you take, you know, did you take all the sheep species or something like this? But there's no, there's no, all it just says is the animals went on, but it does say that the animals went two by two. And that's written in the Babylonian language. The word is shana. Uh, and it means uh, in two or two by two there it is in the very part when the animals are going on board and this is uh, a rather electrifying thing because although since since the 1870s there's been a secure understanding that the text in Genesis which describes the whole flood narrative is strongly related to the, the, the same story found in Babylonian inscriptions the Two by two thing has never been found on a tablet before, and that really makes you sit up because, you know, if you ask anybody what they know about that story, they start singing that little. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a kind of iconic central feature, which previously has been exclusive to Genesis, and then of course in the Quran and, and later other sources. But starting with with the Hebrew Bible, um, but in fact here it was a thousand years earlier, so to speak, in Mesopotamia. So obviously you've, you've mentioned the, the Genesis version, which I'm sure our listeners will be very familiar with. Yeah. How similar is, is the, the flood story on this tablet to what, what you'd read in the Bible? Okay, so remember we just got with this new tablet one section of the story. Of course, yeah. In the Gilgamesh epic, the famous account, we've got the whole story. Mm -hmm. And in 1872, when that first came to light, it came in one big lump. The announcement, the building of the ark, the flood and the aftermath is all described there in a well-preserved inscription. It caused a furore in the 1870s for obvious reasons. Now, much ink has been spilled, but in specific answer to your question, when you read the translation of the Gilgamesh version, which is readily available in English nowadays, and the English translation of the, of the biblical account, there is... There can be no question in your mind that these two passages are, are connected. You could easily have a thing that there was a flood story in one tradition and a flood story in the other tradition, and when you look at them, they're kind yeah. of similar, uh, with, the, with the similarity being on a vague level. But the Hebrew text and the Babylonian text are strongly related from a literary point of view, in that the whole sequence of events is the same, and there are specific issues which show a textual dependency. Perhaps the most striking is that just as Noah, when the, the waters, when the rain stopped and the flood was beginning to go down, released 
three times a bird, and on the third occasion it didn't come back, so he realised that the trees must be appearing above the water, so they had somewhere to overnight, so to speak. Mm -hmm. The same thing is there in the Babylonian. And there are other, many other features, really, which show, just from a literary point of view, a close interdependence one to the other. And when this first came to light, there was a lot of distressed and worried discussion about how it could be that the text of the Bible appeared on this thing. And a primary question was, which came first? Because many people, many and most scholars, conceded that the two were strongly related, therefore one had to proceed. And at that time, the Gilgamesh pieces, written in about 700 or so, were not that far away chronologically from what might have been argued to be early biblical material. Mm. Um, so there was dispute about it, but in subsequent times, culminating in this new tablet today, we've got sources of this composition in Babylonian from a thousand years earlier. So the precedence in Mesopotamia is, I think, unimpeachable. And the other point about it is it makes much more sense that the flood myth should be a Babylonian conception because the of the realities of the territory in which they live, mm. because the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, which feed the heartland of ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, have always been subject to flooding. And apart from seasonal flooding and maybe major disasters, I, I myself believe that the, that the strength of the flood myth in Mesopotamian psychology derives from what must have been a, a, a full-blown tsunami kind of thing, maybe thousands of years in the past, I don't know, when the whole of Mesopotamian culture was basically swept away down yeah. to the Persian Gulf, all the towns and villages and... and, and the, the survivors made their way back in a dazed way to start recreating things afterwards. And um, if that is correct, if that is what lies in the background, and I think it must be, it explains how the flood was such a crucial thing in Mesopotamian psychology. It was a deep-seated thing. And I think that the use of it in the Hebrew Bible, what it was adopted because of its literary power as a motif to explain the vulnerability of man to divine displeasure or the powers of nature, they took the Babylonian story, but they gave it a totally new twist in the creation of the biblical text. So I think that the fact it's derived is certain, but that's not a pejorative way of looking mm. at it, so to speak. There was a period where the, the early Jews were in exile in yes. Babylon. Could it have been then that they picked up this story? Well, that is what I think. I, I think it must be the case because um, the literary dependence is so striking that it rules out a sort of casual, everybody-knew-the-flood story kind of situation. Mm. It demands a more precise assessment. And in writing this book, it came to me as a plausible explanation that the, the Judeans who, who were taken by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon to begin the exile, as you say, um, who were there, firstly were presented with a totally new universe which must have been overpowering, but I think there's strong evidence that, that the intelligentsia among them learned the Babylonian language because they lived there for 73 generations or whatever, and that some of them in fact became literate, and that is what he tells us in the book of Daniel that this happened. And if you take the assumption, which I do, that the description of young Judeans being trained in the palace to read and write is to be taken at face value, it is very suggestive that the especially Babylonian motifs in Genesis yeah. are to be found on curricular school tablets from this period. So in other words, boys who were studying advanced Babylonian literature read the Gilgamesh story, including the flood. They read um, the tradition that kings before the flood lived for thousands of years, and they also read the version of the throwing of baby Sargon into a basket in the river because his mother, who was a priestess, was not supposed to have had a child, which is the origin of the story of mm. Moses and the bulrushes. So they would have encountered the literary form of these narratives in their lives there, and I think that they were woven into the biblical narrative with a totally new religious interpretation. I mean, the clearest case of it is that in the Babylonian flood story, when the gods decided to 
bonk the human race on the head. It was primarily a manifestation of irritation because they were so noisy. This is a very odd thing, and it's been argued by scholars that this is a euphemism for they were so numerous because when creation began, nobody thought about creating death. So you can imagine what it would be like, Hoban Station at the rush hour, everywhere. So in other words, this was a reaction to this, and the upshot of the whole story was that there were barren women and stillborn children and people who didn't marry and disease and all these things were put into the world to keep the numbers in a state of balance. So that's probably what's really going on Although the the thing in the in in the, in the text is because they were very noisy, the, the interesting thing is that in the Judean interpretation of this tablet, God decided to wipe out mankind because they were sinful, which is of course the light motif that runs through the yeah. whole of the relationship between man and God in in the Old Testament that you're supposed to behave yourself and not be sinful, and this was a a manifestation of that principle. So it, it shows, I think, very sharply the reworking of a powerful Hollywood-type narrative which was securely based in the host culture being recycled with a totally new interpretation in the specific need that the Bible represented. No, I think there's a lot of people around the world that, that do take the Bible quite seriously as, yes. as a religious document. Have you found any opposition from them, the kind of work you're doing? Well, we're only on the brink of this, probably, because the book is not uh, going to be published until a day after tomorrow. And I anticipate something of what you say is to be yeah. likely. But I have to say I've written this book with a very great deal of care because my basic position is this, that the text of the Bible, uh, the content of the Bible is the crucial thing. The message of the Bible is the crucial thing. Mm. And that the words and the sentences in which it is addressed are to be regarded in some measure as slightly separate. Now, I know there are people who believe a whole range of interpretations of everything to do with the Bible. And a lot of people take the text literally in a sacred way. They think mm. Every syllable is there deliberately by the hand of the Almighty. And this is, in, in fact, a, a complex marketplace in which to go for a stroll. But the thing is this, when you read the Hebrew Bible, there are many indications which is hard to brush under the carpet that there is a human editorial hand at work. I mean, some scholars have said that different parts of the Bible are written at different periods. They can even say this is such and such an author or that's such and such an author. And then you get the same episode more than once, not quite the same. Things are in a funny place, things are missed out. And what seems to me the most telling case of all is where the, the Bible is talking about the successive kings of Israel or Judah, where what they're really interested in is, was this king Ahab or, uh, or, or Yerachmiel, was, was this a good king or a yeah. bad king? So they give the events of the reign uh, exclusively from that perspective. But in the book of Kings it says, for example, as for the rest of the achievements of this king's reign, are they not written up in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah? Question mark. In other words, the compiler of these historical sections has had at his disposal much longer records. And he reads through the reign of such and such a king and he takes out the crucial stuff no idols, married sensibly, had sons, all that stuff, puts it in the main Hebrew narrative, and quotes his source material. So if anybody wants to know, did this king build a swimming pool? Did he open universities? Did he do what, you know, whatever it will be? Did he win the lottery? Will be in this longer account. So that is unmistakably a human thing. So I'm encouraged by that to feel that one can look at the text, not disrespectfully, or to demolish it, or to laugh at it, or to pick it apart, but merely to indicate that if you have this scenario, that you have literary traditions which were woven by thinking individuals into a finished narrative, if you grant that, then you are entitled to look at what lay behind them. And from this perspective, it seems to me that a religious person for whom the message of the Bible is the crucial thing and the associated interpretations are crucial, the actual words and the actual source behind them, by acknowledging them, suggesting them, 
or even demonstrating them does not detract from the religious value of the Bible. That's, that's my own feeling about it. How important is this discovery, would you say, compared to other remarkable finds that have been over the years? Well, I personally estimate this discovery at a very high level for more than one reason. I mean, firstly, it is a concrete, unmistakable marker in the history of the evolution of this story, which is one of the world's great, powerful narratives, which surfaces everywhere, the flood story. And it's a really hard bit of evidence that in the 18th century BC, it existed, it had this component, that it's already a major factor in the reconstruction of the story which lies behind the Bible. This is a quite a big deal. Um, it's also compounded by the fact that if you ask people what they know about the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, they may or may not have many answers. One might be the Tower of Babel, but one of them will certainly be Noah's Ark. I mean, it's the yeah. kind of thing that everybody in the world knows about. So any new bit of evidence about that is quite interesting. The fact also is that nobody ever had the idea, ever, that anybody thought the Ark was going to be a round vessel. So that's quite a meaty thing. So I think they add up to quite a lot. But also, to me, it's marvellous, because it's given me a chance to write a book in which all this stuff is discussed, but also all about cuneiform writing and all about the other things they write on tablets in an attempt to make a reader who might think all this stuff is nothing to do with them and it's all dead and it's all cardboard, boring nonsense, dusty museum things, is actually full of the most vibrant life in lots of other ways. So in writing this this book, I've done all that. I've written about what Assyriologists do and how the writing works and the other sorts of things and what the people were like, and also about the British Museum. So, Irving, we're actually now standing by the tablet in its glass case in the British Museum, and one thing that, that strikes me quite quickly is, is how small it is, actually. Um, would this be the standard size for these kind of tablets? Well, as a matter of fact, this is exactly a standard size because it fits comfortably in the hand. And many everyday tablets, like letters and business documents and legal contracts and those sorts of things, were all made of that size. And they have about the same amount of writing on, 50 or 60 lines, and, and that's a comfortable. You get bigger things and smaller mm. things, but that's what you might call a default size. What is interesting is to have a tablet of that format used for literature, that's much less common. Mm. So that when one looks at it, for example, if we had 30 or 40 letters of the same period in the case, it wouldn't stand out at all. The writing is written very small, considering you've got 60 lines on what, what you described earlier as something about the size of a Weetabix. Mm. It must have been quite a skilled person who wrote this. Well, it was certainly a, a properly finished scribe who wrote it. It's not from a school. Um, when we have practice tablets, often there's much too much space left, the signs are too big, and they often make errors. But this is an accomplished scribe who's written it for his own purposes, because the writing is not the most neat or the most careful, but it's a highly finished hand. And is it unusual to get what looks like quite a complete tablet arrive in this form rather than just a fragment of it? It varies. It depends on the circumstances because sometimes in antiquity when there was a destruction in a war, everything was smashed to pieces and then the archaeologists thousands of years later will find fragments which they have to try and reconstruct. Sometimes things are found in a box or where they were deliberately put down carefully and they can survive perfectly. Mm. The general rule is that the more interesting a tablet, the more difficult it is to read and the more crucial a line, the more disastrously it's preserved. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you can see there are a couple of cracks yes. running down one side of it. Did that make it harder to translate? Were there any letters missing? Well, it, along the edges of that crack, the context makes it clear, I think in about 80% of the lines, what is absolutely there. And even when you have a crack, what happens is part of the sign is usually just visible to the left or the right, and you can, with experience you can see which sign it was that was originally there. Sometimes you can't be sure, but on the whole... It's not as bad and intimidating as you might think just looking at it now. And the date given here is, is around 1750 BC. Mm -hmm. How can we be sure of that date? Is it through carbon dating or is it through more sort of understanding of the text? There's no way we can carbon date um, clay. It's baked terra it's into terracotta. It is clay. Um, we can date it um, really by the grammatical forms, by the shape, by the syntax and by the sign shapes. Sometimes 
tablets actually have the date at the bottom. They say this comes from year so-and-so of such and right. such a king, and then we know exactly how old it is. But the, the whole appearance of it and the, the way the signs are written and the grammatical endings and all those things together mean about 1750 BC, about the time that Hammurabi was the lawgiver, the famous lawgiver, was on the throne of Babylon. And the British Museum has quite a number of these tablets, so it would be quite easy to compare with other contemporary Certainly. things to know the date. Many of which would be dated, so you, yeah. you, you could say, look, this sign here is exactly the same as on this dated tablet and that would reinforce it. But with experience, it's usually possible to give the date of a, a tablet without, without the information being on it within two or three hundred years. And so the tablet's currently in the ancient Mesopotamia galleries, yes. but it's, it says it's a private loan, so how long do people have to come and see this do you think before it'll be here to be returned? Well, I think it will be here for a few months. I'm not sure exactly. We'll see. If nobody nobody comes over again to see it, then we'll know. But if coach loads start right. struggling to get at the glass, then we'll know <laughs> that too. But it'll be for a few months, I think. That was Irving Finkel. Irving is the author of The Ark Before Noah, decoding the story of the flood, which has just been published by Hodder. And as you've just heard, you can see the tablet for yourself in the British Museum in London. Look out for a review of Irving's book in a forthcoming edition of BBC History magazine. Right now, our February issue is on sale. Inside, we've got an interview with Neil Ferguson, who argues that Britain should not have taken up arms in 1914. Also in this month's magazine, find out about a Victorian royal murder scandal, meet some of medieval London's most sinful inhabitants, and get the backstory to the upcoming Hollywood film The Monuments Men. Our February issue is out now in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The hair and eye colour of Richard III may soon be revealed, as researchers are set to examine his DNA. A team led by Dr Turi King from the University of Leicester will extract DNA from a bone sample before sequencing the former Plantagenet King's genome. Analysis of Richard III's genome will offer insights into his genetic makeup, including hair and eye colour and susceptibility to diseases such as Alzheimer's or diabetes. Genome sequencing is a way of reading our entire genetic code, the exact sequence of roughly 3 billion A's, C's, T's and G's that make up our DNA. 
Richard's skeleton was discovered underneath a Leicester Council car park in September 2012, some 527 years after he was killed at the Battle of Bosworth. In other news, letters sent by soldiers to their wives and sweethearts during wartime have been compiled in a new book. Wives and Sweethearts Love Letters Sent During Wartime brings together letters, photographs and diaries from the First and Second World War archives of the National Army Museum to reveal the personal stories of soldiers and their loved ones during the turbulence of war. The book, published ahead of Valentine's Day, focuses on 50 real-life wartime romances. Meanwhile, a mysterious 2,000-year-old bronze statue of the Greek god Apollo has been found in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Gaza. The 500-kilogram life-size statue was recovered from the seabed by a fisherman who, unaware of its significance, reportedly transported it home on a donkey cart. The statue is currently in the possession of the police. It has not yet been confirmed whether the statue will be put on display. Thank you, Emma. And don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Joanne Harris is the author of a series of best-selling novels, including the award-winning Chocolat, many of which draw upon themes from mythology and folklore. Her latest book, The Gospel of Loki, tells the story of the rise and fall of the Norse gods through the eyes of its title character. She spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about the appeal of Viking culture about what its myths have to offer 21st century society and about the current state of historical fiction. So uh, what first prompted you to write this new book? Well, I've been writing about Norse gods for some time now. I've written two books that are generally structured around the idea of Norse gods after Ragnarok. And it prompted a lot of questions, particularly from some of the younger readers who don't know very much about Norse mythology, who wanted to know more about the original myths. And there have been so many fabulous retellings that I thought perhaps I would do one that was slightly different. So the text is quite close to the original material, but the perspective is from that of Loki. And I just had such a blast writing that voice, really, and and retelling those stories and trying to think of of them from his point of view. That's fantastic. I mean, it's a really strong character that you've chosen, isn't it? I mean, what aspects of his personality or what themes does this book draw out that perhaps others haven't? Well, I think he's an interesting character because he's been a villain for so many years um, and he has been reinvented over the past century or so by various people who have also drawn on the myths. And it seems to me that he's a very modern character now. He's much easier to understand than he would have been 500 years ago because he feels alienated, because he is a kind of troubled individual and we're much more interested in literary terms with troubled individuals. Um, he's he's become almost a kind of existentialist anti-hero. Hmm. And do you think this was kind of inherent in the original telling of his character? Well, I think the original telling of his character has been lost. What we have is a series of retellings. Um, even the, the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda are retellings that were made with a kind of agenda in mind, a Christian agenda. And so therefore that character, I think, to... To the writers of, um, of of the prose and the the poetic Edda, I think it was a sort of reinvention of the kind of idea of the devil in Eden, and so Loki and Lucifer have some things in common. Um, and of course, you never really know why Loki does what he does. It's just because he's evil. But what makes him evil? How does he get to be evil? Nothing is really explained. It's just a kind of, well, he's just inherently evil because he's inherently demonic. Um, That's not very satisfactory nowadays. People like to see somebody's trajectory. They like to see how somebody came to betray their friends, to, um, you know, to behave in that way. Do you think the idea of an anti-hero is is quite a modern kind of spin-on fiction in that sense? I think it is a relatively modern idea. I think it's a sort of post-war idea in many ways. I think when you have a look at the the Victorian revival of Norse myths, it was all about deeds of valour and heroism. Um, Nowadays, when we look at the the elements of Norse myth that have crept into pop culture, it's much more ambivalent. There is a kind of moral question over a lot of it, and the kind of human aspects of the gods, which were always there in the original material, are emphasised, and that's what makes them attractive, because they are flawed, because they're morally questionable. 
No, that's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, we'll touch on the retellings uh, a bit more in a minute. But first of all, I suppose, I mean, what is it that particularly appeals to you about Norse mythology? Well, I think partly coming from Yorkshire, where it's still very much around you everywhere you go. Um, I was brought up with Norse myths. The the place where I live is is full of the leavings of, of Viking settlers. Um, it's It's a very familiar kind of pantheon. But I think also to a, a young person, the the accessibility of those myths, the strength of the characters, um, and also the fact that the myths are tantalizingly incomplete. And so there's plenty of scope for imagination and building upon what's already there. That's fantastic. Do you think the characters in Norse myths are more approachable than in other mythologies in that sense? I think in some ways they are more approachable. I think there are some very strong, very clearly, vibrantly drawn characters there. And also you have the appeal of this small community under pressure that the gods of Asgard present. Um, It's something I've written about a lot in my other books. All my books are really about small communities under pressure. And the, the sort of visual aspect of all these gods in their little stronghold above the world being besieged on all sides, I think is is something quite appealing. As a young person, I certainly found it appealing. And they are very funny, too. They're, they're very, they're very colourful stories. And, and perhaps for readers who perhaps are interested in this book, but kind of aren't sure what necessarily it's about. Perhaps you could tell them a little bit about the plot and what happens to these characters. Well, it takes the the whole of creation from the beginning to the end of all time um, and what comes in the middle. And so it is the rise and fall of the gods of Asgard from the creation of the world to Ragnarok, the, the twilight of the gods, when the earth is destroyed and, and everything comes to an end. It's a fairly broad canvas then, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty much, yes. <laughs> I mean, of course, the, 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 Norse, uh, the Norse myths do kind of look at the possibility of there being another world afterwards, but they, they lived in a kind of rather bleak place mentally because they, they were all set for the end of the world to come at any time. I quite like that. It makes for a kind of robust humour. <laughs> yes. I mean, how did that shape their culture? Well, I think it made them, um, it made them appreciate life. And it made them appreciate the kind of little things in life. There's an awful lot about feasting and fighting and having fun and sex and playing jokes on people. There was a kind of heartiness to those myths. They are not gods that just exist beyond in some kind of etheric place where um, where nothing much happens except a little harp plucking. They're not like that. They're, they're very much down-to-earth characters. That's quite appealing. So you studied languages at Cambridge. Um, That's right. How how do you think that influences your take on fiction? And do you think we can tell a lot about cultures from their languages? I think you can tell quite a bit about a culture from its language. And because English isn't my first language, that was French, I think I've had a slightly different linguistic perspective and a different aesthetic of language. Um, I was brought up with mostly French literature, and then I graduated to English literature when I learned to speak English. Um, and I've always been interested in languages anyway. I'm actually, I've been learning Old Norse very slowly and very painfully so oh, that wow. I could read some of those Eddas in the original. Um, and you can tell a great deal from, from the Icelandic culture by their language. Interestingly, they have about 20 different words for death, and they have some wonderful concepts encapsulated in single words like man left to die a lonely death on a small island wow. or man reduced to the level of grunting pig by drink. As single uh, words? Absolutely. That's and, incredible. Um, so you have this, this wonderful richness and this tendency to, to create words for things which, which are obviously quite popular concepts, which we may not necessarily have words for within our culture because those interests just aren't there. Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, in terms of the sources you, that you kind of you've used in the process of writing this book and these books, are there any that stand out as being particularly fascinating or important to you? Well, I've taken mostly the, the original texts. And in fact, in, in the Gospel of Loki, there is a little translation of Voluspa, the, the poetic edda, which I did from the original and then messed around a little with because I had to expurgate all that boring stuff about dwarves that I couldn't quite fit into the book. Um, but that, that was my little sort of academic geekdom coming out. But um, I also took a great deal um, of material from um, the work of a man called Jan Fries, 
who writes a great deal about runes and runic magic and the evolution of runic magic. And, and he hypothesizes about how runes might have been used, which is interesting because we don't have an awful lot of, of documentation about that. And yet, it's very clear that runes were extremely important because if you look at the old Icelandic, there are so many different words for different kinds of runes, runes of power, runes of battle, runes of victory, um, this kind of thing. It's clear that it was it was very important and yet we don't have any concrete evidence of how they were used. So I drew from, from his work a great deal and particularly a book called Hel Renar, which, uh, which I think is probably the definitive text. I mean... There's obviously some gaps in our knowledge. How much do you think we can get a true sense of their culture, of their society? Well, I think some of it's guesswork, some of it's history, some of it is hearsay, much of it is hearsay. Um, I think, you know, we, we can have a pretty clear picture, but obviously a lot of the details have been lost because those people didn't really do very much writing. Mm. Okay, so I mean, turning back to this latest book, um, how do your characters, other than Loki, differ from the established versions? Have you got new takes on other characters as well? Well, they don't differ all that much because they're such strong characters anyway that all I've done is I have tried to expand them slightly. But obviously, when you're working with such an enormous cast of characters, and because they are archetypal characters, I didn't want to do too much shifting around. And so they're very much as I imagined them when I was seven or eight and I started to read the original myths. You know, we've got Thor, big, beefy, good-natured, quick to anger, but basically a good guy, not too bright. We have Odin, who is wily and mysterious and a little bit scary, who was not venerated in the same way that Thor was by the normal, the ordinary people, simply because he was he was morally ambivalent and a bit too clever. Um, we have Heimdall, who, who hates Loki and who has hated him from the start, and they hate each other. Um, we have Boulder, who is generally just described as being good and beautiful and loved by everyone, um, which makes me hate him already. <laughs> um, and so Loki hates him too. And of course, Loki brings about his death and nobody quite understands why, except that anyone who has been around someone super handsome and super popular just understands that <laughs> visceral <laughs> hatred that you have when somebody is just too perfect. Oh, I can see that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so um, I've just gone with the original material because it's too good to waste. Mm, fantastic. Do you have any favourites other than obviously the title or the main character? Oh, I'm quite fond of all of them, really. Mm. Um, I have slightly reinvented Freya, who is an interesting character because she has two faces. And uh, one is a really quite unpleasant, demonic, crone-like character who picks up the dead in battle. And the other one is the goddess of love and beauty. And she is particularly ambivalent morally. She she is capable of of bewitching people with her, her beauty and her perfection, but she is also incredibly vain and greedy and she will sleep with anybody for jewelry and so i've tried to bring both aspects of her out and and try and bring them together because the myths don't they just have her behaving in one way in one story and they just show another aspect of her in a different story and they don't quite explain how she can be these two women i mean how do women fare generally in the, you know the mythos well i i think they're quite prominent i have made them slightly more so because I rather like the idea of kick-ass women in books and you know, the Norse myths didn't have quite as much attention on some of the female characters as I would have liked. And so they, they got expanded a little. In terms of your take on historical fiction, I read on your Twitter account the other day your thoughts on the Musketeers, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> I mean, what's your take on the current state of historical fiction, perhaps not necessarily even fact-based fiction, but kind of you know, fantasy-based historical fiction? Do you think it's healthy at the moment? I think it's very healthy. Um, I think my beef against the Musketeers wasn't particularly that it wasn't historical. It was just that I'm quite fond of the original book and the original story. And I felt that they'd replaced it by a story that wasn't all that original um, and which wasn't as engaging as it could have been. I'm all for actually modernizing uh, historical fiction. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of movies like A Knight's Tale, for instance, which really played with the idea of introducing completely modern conceptual elements into something which, which was ostensibly a historical movie. I don't think these things need to be taken too seriously. And I think, you know, if it engages the audience and particularly encourages people to take an interest in story, then it's a good thing. 
you know, finally, what impression of Norse mythology would you like readers to take away from this book? Well, um, I'm not particularly wanting them to come away with a specific impression, but I would just like it if perhaps it introduced people to the myths in a way they hadn't been introduced before. I think too many young people only know, for instance, Marvel Comics and their interpretation. And I have nothing against their interpretation, but it's not true to the original in many ways. And it is not the only one that exists out there. And it would be nice if the people who like those comics and the films, the Thor films, would also perhaps look at other versions of the myths, would look at, let's say, retellings by Kevin Crossley Holland, um, and, and get interested in the original source material, which is just as good. That was Joanne Harris. The Gospel of Loki has just been published by Galantz. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that BBC History magazine is holding two-day events in Bristol's M-Shed on the weekend of the 15th and the 16th of March. We begin with a Vikings Day on Saturday the 15th, and then we follow that with a First World War Day event on Sunday the 16th. In each case, you'll get the chance to hear talks from a range of expert historians and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more information about these events and for tickets, visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's almost all for this week. As always, get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out some of your messages in the future. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media, on Twitter at History Extra, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus, do make sure to visit historyextra.com where you'll find history news, features, image galleries, quizzes, and a whole lot more. Next week, we'll be discussing Napoleon with his latest biographer and taking a trip up to Glasgow to explore the Scottish Enlightenment. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Fletcher.